Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, May the 24th, late afternoon in San Francisco. We have a special show today. As I've mentioned, I think, before, I'm just back from Munich in Europe. Uh, I was at the DLD uh, event, usually in January, but because of COVID, they've uh, they put it off. And it's um, it was an interesting event, a kind of pre-Davos event. Uh, it was subtitled Reality Rules, and there was lots of talk of the new reality of the world of tech, of Putin, and all sorts of other things that have reshaped the world over the last six months or year. Uh, lots of good panels. One that I particularly enjoyed was one on uh, innovative approaches to investing, and it featured uh, a fellow who had been on the show back in 2016, and he's had quite a six years. Uh, Joshua Browder is the CEO and founder of Do Not Pay. Back in two, 2016, when Keenon was a, a Cal Innovate show, uh, do not pay was in its uh, early form. It's become quite a big hit now. It's the, according to their own website, it's the world's first robot lawyer. Uh, started off as an app for contesting parking tickets, but now it's become a much broader app, a so-called robot lawyer using smart technology to deal with all sorts of legal uh, and other intelligence issues. Um, and in 2019, it raised almost $5 million from investors, including the blue chip firms of Andreessen Horowitz and, and Founders Fund. What's particularly interesting and intriguing in terms of my conversation in 2016 with Josh is that last year, three Stanford professors came out with a new book called System Error, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. I did conversations with each of them, Jeremy Weinstein, Rob Reich, who's a political philosopher, and Maren Sahami, who I think is the most popular teacher on the Stanford campus. And what was particularly intriguing about System Era is it begins with Joshua Browder, a kind of a, an anecdote about Josh and, 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 a, and a morality tale. And uh, when I bumped into Josh, um, in Munich, I mentioned that I'd done the interviews and, and Josh had a look and um, I want to talk to him about the book, their arguments and how he would respond. So Josh, thank you so much for staying up. I know it's late in London. You're in London at the moment. It's been quite a six years. You look very grown up or certainly much more grown up than you were in 2016. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm not sure uh, if I look grown up or if it's just late here. So that is just a late night look. But either way, it's so great to be back. Well, you're one of the more illustrious startup entrepreneurs in uh, in Silicon Valley. Josh, what's the last six years been like? Intense, right? Have you had any sleep at all? It, it's been crazy, but I could never have imagined that my little parking ticket app would turn into uh, the robot lawyer it is today. Um, we serve millions of consumers and um we now operate in over 200 areas of what I call consumer rights. So every day is a challenge, but it's also very exciting. Um, I was also a bit surprised to see uh, Do Not Pay mentioned in the book. Um, but it was had... more than mentioned. I mean, you were yeah. you were the intro. It was a, 
and I and 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 I think you you might agree. Um, I think it was relatively fair. I mean, these guys are, are decent fellows. They're not just after tech blood. Uh, the uh, the intro was um, was put on Fast Company, and the beginning of the book compares the lives of two Stanford students, you and Aaron Schwartz. And I don't want to turn this into a conversation about Aaron Schwartz, but. Um, uh, Weinstein and Reich and Sahami, th- th- their basic criticism of do not pay, Josh, and you know this as well as I do, is that you were fetishized as a startup entrepreneur, uh, which in itself isn't necessarily problematic, but it's your product they had problems with. The idea that you were enabling people to avoid paying parking tickets, which in their view reflects a certain kind of civic responsibility. If you happen to park in the wrong place, you should be fined, and that money goes to the city. How would you respond to that critique? Well, I, I see it as a, a great marketing for do not pay. It's almost like they say it's unethical because it works too well. Um, and so um, I think 50% of people reading the book would say uh, it's a criticism, but 50%, maybe the ones who actually get tickets and hate big companies and the government, maybe that's even 80% of people um, would actually see it as a, a positive that it, it works. Um, do not pay's mission is to give people uh, rights in, in information. And um, it, kind of the first stage of consumer rights is you, you go into the shop and you'd see these books like how to get out of a parking ticket or how to sue a big company in small claims court. And then the second stage, uh, when the internet era came along, is there were all these uh, consumer rights websites that would bring this information online, like Money Saving Expert in the UK and like Consumerist in the US. Um, and so Do Not Pay is kind of the third stage, which is uh, we actually do it for you online uh, or on an app. You can... Um, go through the steps and, and do not pay will guide you through the information to give you uh, the correct legal defense. So really all we're doing is we're giving people information and the best possible shot. And so if these professors are against do not pay, they're also against books that teach people about the law because we don't take a side about what's right and what, what's wrong. We think that's the job of the courts. Really, all we're doing is arming people with access to justice, which I think is really important because um, it's very expensive and time consuming um, to hire a lawyer to get this done. Well, you use the J word, Joshua, justice. Is that the right word to use when you're disputing a parking ticket? Well, so when I started Do Not Pay, um, I'm a terrible driver and I I probably deserve the, the majority of my tickets. Um, but a, a lot of people through my work, um, they didn't necessarily deserve their tickets. Um, I've seen many cases of kind of elderly pensioners who make a minor mistake, either parking in the bay or scratching the uh, permit in the wrong way, and they get hit with a $100 or £100 fine. I've seen cases of um, disabled people where the permit falls off and they get hit with a fine. I've seen cases of homeless people who live in the car um, who every day they have to worry about tickets. Um, and yeah, so- but, but Josh, let me jump in here. I mean, you got to be honest here. I mean, homeless people are probably not using your app or even really old people. I mean, your app is predominantly used by smart tech people. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me is a rea- DLD reality rules. As I said, I enjoyed your panel. You were very good on it. 
the crowd, as soon as you gave your spiel, applauded. This was an audience of wealthy people, each paying $3,500 to, to, to attend an event like this. Many entrepreneurs, many, very privileged people, for better or worse, very smart people. Yes. And my sense in, a, in the cultural context is people, especially people who are wealthy and powerful, seem to applaud um, disruptors like you, people who somehow undermine the status quo, which I think is one of the issues that the Stanford professors have, not just with you, but with the whole Silicon Valley ethic of disruption. Um, yeah, I mean, so parking tickets make up less than 4% of our caseload at the moment. Uh, the rest of our caseload are things that we can all agree on are terrible. Like we help ordinary people sue robocallers. Um, I'm sure since you moved from England to the US, you started to get a lot more robocalls and it's a really big problem in the US. Um, I don't know if I'd so want every, to sue everyone, them. I just don't take the calls. How, why would you want to sue a robocaller? Because it's actually against the law. Um, you can get up to $1,500 per call if you're on the federal do not call list. And so what do not pay does is um, it gives you a fake credit card so that when they try and sell you something, you can trap them and sue them and get your money. Um, and so that, that's an example of disruption. And um, maybe some people agree or disagree about parking tickets, but um, other cases it's very important to fight back because for me, the one of the best things about technology is anyone can create anything. You don't need someone's permission. Um, in the olden days, you had to like ask your boss or someone to create something with these big institutions. But now anyone can um, create anything they want to kind of disrupt the system. And um, I, I personally don't like robocalls, so that's why we added it to do not pay. Um, and no, I, I agree. Think I mean, I like yeah. Nothing is more annoying than well. I think the only thing more annoying than robocalls is having to sue robocallers because isn't that a business? Even if you do use your app, yeah. Well, we we have people who it's their full time jobs to use do not pay to sue robocalls. Um, but then aren't you just becoming us. like the essentially you're enabling the, the the slimy lawyers that you loathe? Well, these lawyers are slimy because they take a big percentage of the cases. Um, you drive down the road and you see a big billboard about accident attorneys. Do not pay take zero percent. No, but I, I take that point. But I, I'm yeah. saying when you drive down the road and you see those lawyers, those are horribly slimy. So maybe you're, quote unquote, disintermediating them. But then with this ability to find robocallers, aren't you just enabling other lawyers doing the same thing and taking huge cuts? So if the biggest problem that do not pay fights against is um, these big companies and the government, there's concentrated benefit, but spread out harm. So a big company like Comcast can charge uh, millions of people a $20 late fee, but no one, and they get the big benefit of that with all their profits, but the average consumer can't fight back for $20. So do not pay gives them the power to fight back that they didn't previously have. And the same is true with parking tickets. Um, you would think with criminal justice, uh, and even though it's something very minor, like a parking ticket, parking in the wrong place, breaking the rules, there wouldn't be a profit incentive for the government to give you the tickets. But there is a huge incentive for them to do that. And so just like with Comcast, they get this big concentrated benefit of in New York City, $1 billion of ticket revenue a year and the diffuse harm 
um, is all these consumers getting these $100 tickets here, $200 tickets there that they can't fight back against. So do not pay it just serves as a check and balance on these big institutions. And what I found so surprising about the book is how could anyone be on the side of um, Goliath? Um, I'm, I'm on the side of David, and I think most people are too. Josh, you come from a, a remarkable family. Your grandfather was one of America's best-known labor union organizers, uh, very much on the left. Your father is probably as an individual, uh, the most effective opponent of Vladimir Putin, a remarkably brave and effective man. Do you see your work at Do Not Pay as continuing in that family tradition of political disruption? I, I think that um, I'm very proud of my family and um, what they've done is much more brave than what I've done. It, it, it's much easier to go after Comcast and the parking ticket people than it is to go after the Russian mafia. Um, but with that said, I have learned a lot from them, which is um, to be fearless. Um, I, I'm not really scared of much. I, I'm, I've had a lot of life experiences and I've seen a lot uh, from what my father's gone through. And so, you know, when these professors criticize me or uh, the parking ticket people come after me, or even the robocallers. Uh, it's just water under the bridge. Um, and I, I'm really excited by what I do. And it doesn't really, nothing really phases me anymore. Josh, my wife is a lawyer. Many lawyers out there. Uh, what about the argument that your app is disintermediating human labor? That if the do not pay types of apps become ubiquitous, you're essentially wiping out the professional class of lawyers and then the next step will be engineers or doctors. Are you fearful that smart technologies like Do Not Pay will essentially destroy the professional uh, middle class of the, the industrial age? I, I think it's much more optimistic than that. Um, we do want to replace some lawyers, but only the ones that are not very good. The ones that, as you said earlier, uh, you see on billboards. Um, and, and to be honest, most lawyers will not get out of bed for a $50 parking ticket. And so I think their jobs are safe from now. for now. Um, the benefit for now, but that's a little, yeah. a, a little chilling because a few more iterations of your product or other companies like you and you're going to go after the more sophisticated lawyers, aren't you? Well, we, we, we're sticking to our lane of consumer rights. Um, and luckily, lawyers aren't very interested in that. But there are other technologies where it's augmented. So it's human and machine. And maybe it makes the lawyers 10 times better. So they're actually improving themselves. It's not even consumer-facing technology. Like there's software like Clio um, and um, others where that it actually helps the lawyers become 10 times better. So I, I'm a very techno optimist. Um, and I think that in areas that are underserved, like consumer rights, technology can swoop in and automate that. And in areas where there is some sophistication, it can partner with humans to, to make them more efficient and less stressed as well. What's the business model of, of Do Not Pay? How do you make money yourself? We're a subscription. Um, it costs between three and twelve dollars a month, depending on um, the service you use. You keep a hundred percent of any money you get, and also we don't have any ads and we don't sell any data. It's the first line of our terms of service. 
Josh, when you and I met in 2016, you were an undergrad at Stanford uh, and tech was riding high. Six years later, we have the tech lash. What's your sense of what's happened over the last six years? I think that um, the media and tech have been at war um, and tech, tech's been very bad. Um, Facebook is a, is a very evil company and they've actually been evil to do not pay specifically. Um, what have they done? So we there's this great law in California called the California Consumer Privacy Act. It's like GDPR, which gives people the right to privacy online. Um, and we automated the ability to delete Facebook accounts. Um, and all of a sudden we were on Facebook one day, I was messaging a do not pay product to a friend and it said that our entire uh, domain had been blocked. Um, and the reason it was blocked is because of the retaliation for our um, submitting about 2000 cases to get accounts deleted. And I tweeted about it and within 12 hours they reversed their decision. But it shows that um, how much power they have. If they can block do not pay across every Facebook property just because they, we did something they don't like, it shows that they don't really have the internal controls in place to kind of have be balanced. They're, they're very much uh, retaliatory and in the corporate interest. Um, anyway, I think a few big players have ruined it for everyone else. Most of tech I see is very positive. The panel you went to was actually about investing. I, I help a lot of founders. And I think what that what all the founders I work with and help, they're working on really cool things. Josh, um, one of the things that the Stanford professors suggested was uh, com comparing and trust con contrasting you with Aaron Schwartz. Again, I, I don't want to, you know, Aaron Schwartz is a, is a complicated and controversial figure as well. But but let's talk about their perhaps their general message about the role of young smart internet entrepreneurs like you, superstar kids who went to Stanford, dropped out because you were essentially too smart to be at college and you started your own companies. You remember Peter Thiel famously said, we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters. Is the same true for tech startup entrepreneurs like yourself? Perhaps to rephrase what uh, Thiel said, we were promised Aaron Schwartz's and all we got were Joshua Browders? Well, I was really surprised to read that. So my my uh, kind of mission, I just dislike corporations and the government. I, I dislike authority, as you probably can tell. And so my mission with Do Not Pay is to help people get justice and fight back against that. And when we met, um, it wasn't even a company. It was just a website. And so I was considering at the time whether to do a nonprofit or a for-profit startup, um, which is the kind of decision that I think the book is criticizing. And the reason I chose a startup is not because of this like glitz and glamour of Silicon Valley. Um, I, I'm not really attracted to that and don't associate with it. I did it because I think that the best way to get global distribution is to have capital. And it's, it's true that it's much easier to raise capital as a company and startup than it is as a nonprofit. So the reason I chose the path I did was for maximum impact, um, not necessarily just to uh, follow the startup kind of cliche. And so I, I wish the book kind of explored that decision more rather than just uh, casting aspersions. Did you ever, I'm curious, did you ever take class with this Weinstein, Reich or, or Sahami? Did, have you ever talked to them? 
I, I did. I, I took Sahami's class. Um, and I heard I that's did. a very popular class. Everyone at Stanford has to take it, essentially, don't they? Yeah, and I did really well in the class. Like, I asked a few questions in the teaching period and stuff, and I thought, you know, I was smooth sailing. Uh, and it was <laughs> there actually. Sahami, I would say, is my favorite uh, Stanford professor. Um, and so my when I, I I bought his book just because I was interested in it opened up the first tra chapter and I was like wow this is <laughs> this is terrible I, I've been betrayed I bet, you, I bet you were yeah. half amused though weren't you I, I was just shocked but that, that then I was amused because it didn't really say anything bad it was fairly balanced as you mentioned well, what I mean Sahami but the whole point of Sahami in the book is that he's supposed to be giving kids like you a moral education. Clearly, you didn't, or at least in his mind, you couldn't have learned much from taking his class. I, I, I'm not here to kind of criticize the professors, but one thing I would say is they they all write these books and stuff, but they're they're as ingrained, they're more ingrained with Silicon Valley than I am. They're all advisors to Google and all of these other companies. I think Sahami actually uh, invented the Gmail spam filter. Yeah, so he did. So, so you, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I just see it as all kind of entertainment and interesting to read. Which I, I tend to agree, which makes it even more depressing. The, uh, the, the theme of DLD was reality rules. And of course, the shadow at DLD in Europe, in particular, in Central Europe, in Munich, was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You mentioned earlier, Josh, that you don't like the state, you don't like authority. But when you have a military invasion of a, uh, an innocent country like Ukraine, doesn't that underline the fact that the state isn't going away, that had Biden and the European governments not pushed back, Russia would probably now be occupying Kiev? And doesn't that underline, uh, borrowing some language from DLD, that the, 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 real, the, the reality of the state and of uh, some credible central authority still rules or should rule? I think um, it's all about scale. So on a national level, it's it's really important that countries stand up for themselves and national security is a, is a great uh, aspect of the state that I'm sure everyone can agree with. Um, but on a local level, I really don't believe the government should control people's lives. Um, one example that Do Not Pay sees um, is homeowners associations in the United States, where these kind of neighborhoods and groups of homes or groups of apartments dictate how people live. And one example that they have uh, on a case we're fighting is the homeowners association is saying that everyone in the entire neighborhood has to keep their garage doors open uh, between 9am and 4pm. And that sort of intrusion into uh, normal people's lives is something I don't think is justified and um, people can use the law to fight back. Josh, what about Web3, crypto? and decentralized or autonomous organizations and this promise that we can do away with the what you call you know, evil companies like Facebook in this next wave, this next iteration, this next chapter in the digital revolution. I, I don't suppose Do Not Pay is a Web3 company. I mean, you don't operate on, on the blockchain, but your principles are not foreign to Web3, are they? I think we definitely share the same principles. Um, I'm very skeptical of a lot of Web3 projects. That's probably one thing that me, you, and even the professors can agree on. Um, I think a lot of it has actually spoken mirrors. But what about DAOs? Is that just 
marketing hype and crypto do you think that's a bit of a scam too i think um llc's work great as well um i i don't see any problem with llc's um actually perhaps better because i'm a legal nerd and, and the legal protections are a lot better with a llc than a dow um but i know some states like wyoming are actually trying to change that but um as of right now it's definitely better to have an llc than a dow i mean do not do not pay would would not operate as a DAO today because it, it just it would be too much bureaucracy um we, we wouldn't be able to do it uh, you know it's the innovators dilemma josh you know all about that just as you know yesterday you were the disruptor tomorrow you're going to be disrupted there's probably some kid a 16 year old or 18 year old maybe an even an undergrad at stanford maybe even taking sahami's course who is thinking how am i going to disrupt do not pay well, um, if the professors get their way, I don't have to worry about that because they're going to end all disruption and, and introduce massive government regulations. So, well, um, no, to be fair, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure that Reich, Sahami and Weinstein are saying that, are they? Did you think they said that in System Era? I, I think that what they're, the conclusion of the book, and I can't speak for them, is that tech is very dangerous. And um, to solve that, they need kind of two things. The first is to teach people like me not to challenge the system. I'm sure you can agree they say that. And then the yeah, second they definitely thing, do. I mean, they, yeah. that's why I invited you on. I think it's good yeah. to have a response to the professors. Yeah. And the second thing they say is um, tech is so dangerous that we need more government regulation. Um, and so there'll be so much red tape to innovating if, if they get their way that um, there will definitely be less innovation. But, but, but Josh, you haven't still addressed their question and my question about, say, the way in which parking tickets, and yeah. most of them are legal. I'm sure you can always find examples of parking tickets which aren't fair. But mo I've had many parking tickets in my life, and they've always been fair, and I've always happily paid them. Not happily, but I've paid them. The way in which these parking tickets supplement local uh, local services, libraries, schools. Isn't that one of the core elements of democracy and of local communities? This is actually the thing I disagree the strongest in the book about, that um, everyone should get parking tickets because it's a source of government revenue. I, I think that's what taxes are for. Um, both, both of us uh, live in California, which has this um, rule called Proposition 13, which means that landowners uh, and very wealthy property owners don't have to pay much property tax. And property tax revenue actually goes to the same place that parking ticket revenue goes to, which is local governments. So is it worth uh, penalizing people uh, overzealously because there's not enough money or is it worth fixing the taxes? Well, it's not overzealous to get a $50 parking ticket for parking illegally, is it? Um, I think, I mean, in San Francisco, it's, it's 300, but um, I, I, think it, I think it is. I think that, um, interestingly, the, the richest places in America have the lowest parking ticket costs. So you look at places like, you know, uh, Aspen, the parking tickets are $40, and we track this at Do Not Pay. Meanwhile, in the poorest area of New York, it's $400. So there can still be an incentive uh, for people to not park uh, in an illegal way, but it doesn't have to be excessive and take up 20% uh, of a, someone's weekly income. 
Josh, you and I both live in San Francisco, which is the future for better or worse. I think of all American cities, a city of enormous inequality between a, a tiny group of extremely rich people and a massive underclass, a huge, um, a, a huge homeless community. You live in the Tenderloin, so you, you, you've experienced it probably closer up than I do. Um, you mentioned that San Francisco's parking tickets are $300. That's not a bad thing, is it? That the rich at least can supplement some services and, 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 and public services in San Francisco have been completely decimated. Are you saying then the way to fix that is not parking tickets through local taxes? Are you in favor of massively increasing taxes in, in, in San Francisco? I, I think so. I mean, um, I, I support taxes over um, just picking and choosing random people on the street to kind of give tickets to. It's so easy to get a parking ticket. Um, I'm not the most sympathetic person, but most ordinary people. Well, it's not that easy. You, you just park illegally and you get one, right? Um, well, it's kind of a, a complex, uh, like that. <laughs> these these people they follow you around. Um, you, Which you're people? One centimeter out. Which the, people? The people in San Francisco, the parking ticket uh, kind of buggies um, that I'm sure you you know. <laughs> um, it, it's very well orchestrated. It's like a corporation to find people. Um, but but the most important thing is, you know, parking tickets is not the majority of our work. It's less than 4%. Um, there are so many things that we can all agree on that we hate, like how hard it is to cancel your gym membership. Um, I'm sure even the professors are uh, open to uh, easy to cancel subscriptions. So there's so much we can agree on this small thing that we do that there's some disagreement. It's not worth a whole chapter of a book. Finally, Josh, I think one thing that everyone in this country, in America at least, would agree on is that the healthcare system is profoundly dysfunctional. Could you, you figure out an algorithm, some sort of product, something like Do Not Pay, to help fix this broken system, which seems to lie both at the literal and metaphorical heart of everything that's gone wrong with America? Yes. Um, and, and the, the, most positive thing is that the consumer rights laws um, in all areas are getting um, even better. So the most exciting law um, for do not pay in the healthcare space is about a year ago, the government said that all hospitals um, have had to publish their prices. Um, and now you're just starting to see compliance with that new rule. Um, and so I think with transparency, uh, healthcare prices will go down and uh, do not pay. We're working on like a price comparison tool uh, between hospitals and services. Um, and we're also working on bureaucratic things like filing insurance claims. Um, so it still has a long way to go, but um, at least the laws are kind of catching up, which is what's so exciting. Do you see yourself as continuing the tradition when it comes to consumer rights of activists like Ralph Nader? We had a show on neoliberalism, a historian of neoliberalism suggested that both the left, people like Ralph Nader and the right of American politics are all committed to this neoliberal rejection of the state, whereas the, the left tends to dress it up in the language of consumer rights. Um, so I, I was on Ralph Nader's show um, some time ago, and I, at least I know he's a fan of Do Not Pay. Um, I, I see he doesn't even have the internet. He's an old friend of mine. He doesn't even have a computer or a phone. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know, but at least he's a fan of the concept, unlike the professors. Um, but um, I, I think that um, I, I try not to get political about it. Um, 
Everyone hates robocallers. It doesn't matter if you're on the right or the left. Everyone hates subscriptions. Um, I'm from the UK, so I don't try and ingrain myself that much with politics. I just try and do what I think is personally annoying um, to fight back against. Well, I think, uh, um, uh, Josh, we'll have to get one of the professors on and we can have a debate between you and there. It's an interesting debate and I think an important one. And I think it's it's part of an ongoing discussion about the role of tech entrepreneurs and the nature of the state and laws and the internet. So I want to thank you. You've been a good sport, a good spirit in responding to these criticisms. And uh, the best of luck with Do Not Pay, although I think... Um, I personally don't use it because while I don't enjoy paying parking tickets, I'm happy to pay my parking tickets and I've never had an illegal one. Thank you so much for having me.